Welcome to Fixated, the Fixed Income Podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Moran, Editorial Director of Fixed Income News Australia. Join me every week as I talk about the latest news, views and education in fixed income investment. I'll be joined by industry experts from Australia and across the globe. Welcome to today's podcast. My special guest this morning is Andrew Lockhart, who is Managing Partner of Metrics Credit Partners. Good morning, Andrew. Hi, Liz. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to have you here. Um, So today we're going to talk about private debt, which is uh, one of the asset classes I've been talking about in that investors can get higher returns and it's often over secured property, which is one of the comforts uh, that you can take. But the, I've, I've read a few different definitions of private debt. So, Andrew, how, what's your definition and um, how did you derive that? It's interesting. I, I think the Australian market is, is quite unique. Um, and so, really, what, what tends to happen is in the Australian market context, we, we either have um, companies raising funds through public market bonds or they're raising debt financing through banks. And so I I generally look at private debt being all areas along the risk spectrum from high investment grade through to sub-investment grade borrowers, but they're transactions that are private, they're confidential, they're not traded through a public market, which differentiates it to a public market bond security. So anything that is privately negotiated um, and and the tradability of the debt is through um, a direct assignment or a transfer of the loan asset between lenders is is a private transaction by its nature. So can private debt be to companies that are listed, for example, as well? Does, it doesn't matter as long as the transaction's private as such. Is that right? That, that's my view. So if you think about a loan transaction, it's a transaction that is entered into directly between a lender and the borrower. Um, the, 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 and one of the differences, I guess, between a public market bond and a loan is that a loan can generally be freely traded. So the issuer or the borrower uh, has no ability to restrict the transfer or assignability of the, of the bond between other investors. In a loan, um, the issuer or the borrower can actually restrict or has to provide their express consent if one lender was to transfer its exposure to another incoming lender. And so by, by its very nature, um, the, the transactions are then private, confidential, and, and the information that we have to be able to assess the risk is information that's provided to us in a private context. So we're subject to tight confidentiality. And yes, it can be a public company, it can be a private company, uh, it could be an investment grade or sub-investment grade borrower. And is it typically a company or is it? can it be like a mortgage loan, a, a non-bank lending to someone for a housing loan? Is that still considered private debt in Australia? Uh, generally, our view would be is it's a corporate loan. And so it's uh, lending to a specific company. Now, that company might be a, a, a company, a public company where you've got uh, a lot of shareholders or it might be what we call a special purpose vehicle, an SPV where the, the shareholding and the, the capital that's contributed is, is closed effectively. It's quite an interesting market because not that long ago, you really had to be an institution to access the market or a non-bank lender yourself, but it's now really started to open up to uh, personal investors. And can you tell me some of the reasons that personal investors might like to look at this asset class? I think it's interesting, Liz, because I think, you know, if I, if I think about the world of bonds, 
um, and really what's been available for investors, you know, personal investors to access has been, you know, sort of one-off individual bonds or hybrid securities. And, and so, you know, it's still very difficult for an individual personal investor to be able to gain a direct exposure to a, to a corporate loan um, or to a private loan. And the reason for that is that most investors at a retail or personal level would maybe look to have a diversified portfolio. And so the amounts that they might invest may not be sufficient. So if we, we think about our experience as a lender, we, we will generally lend anywhere between $10 million to, say, $100 million. That's generally outside the, of, the, of the capacity of one individual personal investor um, and certainly wouldn't be a way they'd get diversification across their portfolio. And so one of the things that's probably changed most is funds have been established to aggregate and pool investor capital where that capital can then be used to directly lend to the company. And so one of the things that we've tried to do in metrics is to effectively change the way in which an investor can gain exposure through aggregating capital and providing a mix of different funds or vehicles that cater specifically to the individual um, requirements of the investor. So if an investor says, okay, I'm targeting a particular return um, and this is my risk tolerance and these are the ways in which I want liquidity, hopefully we've got a different vehicle that can cater to that. Um, you know, generally what happens though in private debt is, you know, an investor's need for liquidity um, often prevents them from accessing the market because the loans can't be bought and sold at short notice or traded over a, over a screen like a public market security. The loans are what we call uh, less liquid. And that's really because, again, the borrower can restrict the assignability or the transferability of the loan. So when an investor invests in private debt, they generally have to accept that the underlying loan might be for a term of maybe three to five years. And during that period of time, they may have restricted means to be able to buy and sell and get liquidity for their investment. And that's one of the reasons, for instance, we, we established the listed fund because it gave people access to the asset class, but gave them a mechanism to transfer or trade their interest by buying and selling units in the stock exchange. Um, so it's, it doesn't mean that the underlying loan asset is liquid, but their investment in our fund becomes more liquid than it would otherwise be. So you've highlighted a couple of things there, that you can access access the asset class, that one of the risks is illiquidity if you're investing direct uh, and the high amounts that you need to invest direct. Um, but the returns are really quite attractive, aren't they? That's one of the reasons people have been drawn to the asset class. And uh, my understanding, the returns are sort of 5 Five to ten percent is that? Is that? It very much depends on the risk. So you know, when we when we enter into a loan transaction, you know, you have to have to accept that the borrower, you know, we're not looking to lend to companies or to businesses that have no other alternative. We're not a lender of last resort, and so therefore we operate in a competitive environment where we're competing with and working alongside banks to provide financing to those companies. So if you're a very strong uh, credit quality borrower, you will obviously be paying less for your your financing than a than a sub investment grade or a higher risk borrower. Or depending on where you sit in the capital structure, if it's senior secured, 
chances are you'll be having uh, you'll be you'll be paying a lower price than a mezzanine or subordinated debt. So you know a range of things actually come into play. In fact, one of the things you've just highlighted, I think, is is really important. And, and that's really, why, why do investors gain benefits in terms of higher returns by pooling and aggregating capital with a manager that can lend? And, and, and our argument with that is, well, if an investor invests in, in, in pooled funds with a manager that can directly originate and access lending opportunities, then that lender should have the ability to negotiate terms and conditions with the borrower directly. So providing a benefit to our investors in terms of risk management, and because you're originating the loan opportunity directly with the company, you're charging the company fees, which is a source of income uh, to the investor. And then obviously, if you can invest in a size and scale, then you as the lender or the investor in that manager's fund have power in the negotiation. And so as a result of that, one of the things that we try and try and do for our investors is really, um, I guess... Give give our investors the benefit of the power in the negotiation through access to funding, and what I mean by that is I think that um, providing a non-bank source of debt financing to a company is a valuable source of financing for that company, and therefore we should negotiate that and ensure that our investors are appropriately rewarded for the scarcity of capital. So not necessarily just taking on more and more risk to drive a return, but hopefully generating a return through you know a, prop, a proper recognition of the value of the funding that we're providing to the company. One of the things that's quite interesting, if you're if you have a seat at the negotiation table, is that you can demand some of the covenants on the loan. So. For those of you that don't know what a covenant is, it's like a, a term and condition that the company has to meet. And so you can put covenants in the documentation that give extra protection to your investors. Um, is that true with metrics, Andrew? Oh, very much so. Um, at the end of it, there are probably two things that a lender will always look at. One is, how can I ensure that the company that I'm lending to has generated sufficient cash flow to service and repay the debt? And so covenants are applied to ensure it is generating sufficient cash flow to service and repay its debt. And, and the covenants are there to trigger uh, an early warning. So if, if the company's credit quality deteriorates and, and the source of cash flow is deteriorating, then the covenant should trigger to give sufficient warning to a lender to take proactive steps to manage the risk. The other area that a lender would look to protect and control is through the integrity of the balance sheet. And so what I mean by that is we don't want a company that we're lending to increasing its level of leverage or dealing with its assets without our consent. So, for instance, a lender would impose a range of covenants and controls in relation to the company's ability to take on additional leverage, or we might restrict the company's ability to pay dividends. We might impose controls on the company's ability to buy and sell assets to complete acquisitions. Those sorts of controls are the things that a prudent lender would do to manage risk. And so covenants like a debt to earnings uh, or a debt to earnings ratio or a leverage ratio are important mechanisms to control risk. One of the other things I wanted to talk to, to you about today was just the size of the market here. And um, I know you've been doing some work with uh, Prequin um, on, on data and stats, and perhaps you might like to share some of those with, uh, with the audience. It's a very large market. If you think about it, you know, it's over probably a trillion dollars of debt uh, or corporate debt. 
the problem that you get in the market is that there's no consistent definition and I'm not 100% convinced that you know, the statistics capture all sources of data. And the reason for that is that, you know, if we sit outside the banking system, yeah, we report information to APRA, but I'm not 100% sure that even the, the loans that we make get captured in, in the data that APRA would, would report. Um, so it's a very large material market, but it is a bank-dominated market. And so if you think about, you know, the, the market as a whole, you've got four domestic major banks competing and providing funding for corporates. Uh, you've got a range of foreign lenders that are active in providing uh, funding to corporates. You've got um, non-bank lenders and you have um, the bond market. But one thing that is important to note is I think the work that we've done suggests that, you know, it's the, the corporate uh, lending market, which is which includes all loans to companies greater than $2 million. So it's actually a very low threshold. And in some ways, that probably captures small to medium sized businesses. But that total level is around about $1.2 trillion in Australia. Now, if you think about the true corporate bond market in terms of outstanding loans to true genuine corporates being non-financials, non-government, uh, non-bank non uh, corporate bonds uh, is around about $35 billion in outstanding. So it's materially larger than the corporate bond market, domestic corporate bond market, but it is, um, and it's well diversified across industry sectors and borrowers. It touches the true genuine economic activity of, of businesses within Australia and the operations of those businesses within Australia. But it is, a, it is again, a bank-dominated market. Part of the reason for that is that most Australian companies are unrated. Uh, so they don't have an S&P or a Moody's rating. And so their ability to access uh, non-bank institutional debt financing or capital through the issuance of a bond is pretty restricted. And, and really, retail clients and investors have limited appetite to support corporate bonds where they don't have name recognition. So obviously, if you're a, a Woolworths or a, a branded name, then you can probably issue a retail bond and, and be able to access financing at a competitive rate. If you don't have that retail brand recognition, it's actually quite difficult. And so again, that highlights that most Australian companies come back to borrow money from the banks. Mm, that's true. I was reading some stats the other day that was, say, that was saying that roughly, and correct me if I'm wrong, or you might have other, other data, but uh, about 4% of um, the loan market here is through private debt. Whereas in like the Europe and the US, it's more like thirty percent is uh, of the corporate loan market is financed through private debt. So there's this huge opportunity in the Australian market for uh, private debt to grow and take market share from the banks, which I think is what we we've been seeing. I think that's right. I think um, certainly our view since the GFC, and one of the reasons why we established metrics was because our view was that the banks would face into tougher. Uh, and more demanding regulatory environment. And as a result of those changes, it would become very difficult for the banks to generate their required return on equity for directly lending. So if you actually think about it, what's actually occurred since the GFC is most of the banks have reduced their exposure to corporates. And so you know, companies have been forced to find alternative ways in which they raise debt financing. And so if that trend continues, and shareholders in banks continue to demand higher return on equity, then the banks will naturally pivot their lending to higher return on equity 
transactions, be it capital light transactional banking or derivatives or currency, or they'll provide financing to consumers and their home loans, or they'll or they'll wholesale finance non-bank lenders, which is a big part of what you've seen occur in the market. A, a couple of things about your business, and it started after the GFC, um, and it's been going now for, is it 12 years? Am I thinking, is it about 12 years? We set up Metrics in 2011 and uh, we launched our first fund in June 13. So we've actually gone eight years now in terms of our first uh, first fund in terms of its operation. And perhaps do you want to describe the fund to us and how people can invest, what the, the returns have been, what the performance has been like, if there's been any arrears or anyone's lost any money? That would be great to understand. Um, we, we we invest across the full risk spectrum. And so what I mean by that is we have investment grade exposures through to sub-investment grade. Um, and, and because you're lending directly to those companies and negotiating, the price will be different. So the returns will be different depending on the risk. So we have some funds, for instance, where we seek to deliver investors with, um, you know, at a retail level, the RBA cash rate plus 3.25 net. So investors can access that through our listed fund of MXT or our Metrics Direct Income Fund, which is an unlisted version of MXT. Um, or if they're a wholesale investor, they might invest in our underlying wholesale funds. Um, and so our Diversified Australian Senior Loan Fund seeks to deliver bills plus 300 basis points. So a bit over 3.5%, say, as a, as, a, as a current return. Um, all floating rate with income paid monthly to investors. And we, we span everything then through to, you know, high uh, early teens returns in terms of our credit trust, where we might have investors that want to gain exposure to higher yielding opportunities, so mezzanine or subordinated debt, or they might be wanting to actually um, have us have a mandate that allows us to also take an equity interest in a company that we've lent to. So really, it really does vary. Um, the important thing that what we're trying to do, though, is to ensure that we've got flexible capital from our investors with a clear mandate that allows us to originate opportunities in direct transactions with companies. And we can be then relevant to those companies, either providing you know, senior debt, senior secured debt, or if we think that we can actually drive a better return for our investors, we might negotiate a position whereby we'll lend to the company, provided that our investors get some participation in, in capital gains or growth. Um, and so what we've really tried to do is give investors, you know, both from a portfolio perspective, for portfolio construction perspective, what we've tried to do is give investors at one end of the risk spectrum an alternative to traditional fixed income. This is the way in which you can gain access to a diversified pool of um, of fixed income like securities that are well diversified and that, that caters to that. At the other end of the spectrum, what we've tried to say to investors is, well, you're, you're currently investing in equities for income. So we get a lot of investors in the Australian market that hold shares in, in public companies with a view that the dividends will give them an attractive income for, 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 their, for their portfolio or their capital. Whereas our view is that if you actually invest in the debt part of the capital structure, you can actually generate an equity-like income, but with reduced volatility. And so one of the things you asked me there is how, how we performed over the last eight years. You know, we've been fortunate. We've, uh, you know, we've completed now uh, well over 400 individual transactions. Uh, we've lent over 12 billion uh, of, of funds to different companies. 
Uh, we now manage uh, around $8 billion of assets under management. Um, and over that eight-year period, we've not had any losses. Uh, we've delivered consistent monthly income for our investors. Um, our investors have not lost any capital. And in fact, we've exceeded the minimum target returns across all of our funds. And we operate 13 different four investors. Um, and so, again, we've, we've done a lot over that, you know, sort of last 10 years. We've invested a lot in terms of building and bringing together a really high, highly skilled professional team. We have, you know, offices in Sydney, Melbourne and in Auckland in New Zealand. We've invested a lot in our risk management capability. And, uh, you know, I think that we've built a, a very good business that's, um, you know, delivering good investment outcomes for clients. I think one of the things that we've been keen to sort of change, I guess, Liz, is, you know, the experience of a lot of investors have had where they've invested in debenture funds or they've invested in 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 in, in only high yield mezzanine property. We've tried to, you know, introduce investors uh, to a to a broader asset class. Uh, we've tried to do it in a way where corporate governance structures are really robust and strong, protective of investor interests. And and I and I and and I guess what we've also been able to do is use our skill set around, you know, the relationships we have with companies, with banks, with corporate advisors to originate good opportunities for our clients, but to do it in a large, scalable way where you can actually drive down the cost structure for investors over time. Um, and that, and that's you know been an important thing, you know, been an important feature of what we've tried to deliver to the market. Look, I've been following uh, metrics for quite a while, and your growth has certainly been impressive. Just drilling down a bit into MXT, so how many loans would be in that portfolio? And um, just if our listeners are interested in investing, perhaps you can just talk through how they would invest in the minimum investment amount and uh, if they wanted to um, sell their units, how, how that would work. So MXT is a fund that we listed on the stock exchange back in October of 2017, trades under the ticker code of MXT. It's called the MCP Master Income Trust. Um, the, the the units in that fund, that fund is currently around about $1.5 billion in terms of total capital, uh, invested across in excess of 170 individual loans, where the average exposure per counterparty or per company that we have an exposure to is less than 1%. So we've sought to really diversify investors' risk by having a low level of exposure to any one individual borrower. So an investor can gain access to that by buying or selling units on the stock exchange, go to their broker, speak to their financial planner and and consider whether or not it's an investment appropriate for them. Um, The units trade and we quote a daily NAV. uh, So the the daily price of all of the value of the fund is quoted on a daily basis. I think last time I looked at it it was just over $2 uh, in terms of the NAV and on on Friday uh, it closed at about $204. So slight premium to the NAV. Um, if an, a big, one of the big risks for an investor, though, in buying units on the stock exchange is they're, they're subjected to not only the performance of the loans, but they may have risk associated with the price that the units trade on the stock exchange. And so we can't, we can't determine you know, whether or not a, a, the, the units would trade at a premium or a discount to NAV, and I'd suggest any investors interested should look at the daily NAV that we quote. Um, and that, that gives them an indication as to the value. For those investors that don't want to take the risk of how the units might trade on the stock exchange, can buy units in a, in a vehicle that is the unlisted version called the Metrics Direct Income Fund. 
and they can go to our website and look at the PDS and, and again, seek financial advice to determine if that's an appropriate product for them. But one of the features about MDIF or Metrics Direct Income Fund in comparison to MXT is that the units will be traded at the daily NAV on a monthly basis. So all of our funds pay out income monthly, so investors can subscribe to units uh, and then they'll be able to, um, to to receive their first income distribution at the end of the month. One of the things I like about it is if you think about it, you're getting a return that's pretty attractive in comparison to alternatives um, with income distributed monthly. And in the case of MXT, you've got daily liquidity through the stock exchange. The thing you, you, you do take risk on, though, is one, obviously, the credit quality of our portfolio. I mean, number two risk, I think, is is the value of those units trading on the stock market. So investors should do their research and have a good look at it and make sure it's appropriate for them. But they can certainly access uh, through their broker or financial planner more information. That's fantastic. I'm sort of conscious of the time. But before we go, I feel like it's remiss of me not to ask you what's happening in the corporate loan market and are companies seeking financing? Is it all boom, uh, Australia? Um, any insights you would have for us would be terrific. Look, I think demand uh, in from from our funds is very strong. You know, we we obviously we spend a lot of time and effort originating and managing risk. So you know, we want to build good long term relationships with companies because you know, the the bigger or the better quality of the relationship we have with the company, the deeper the knowledge that we have of their business and the industry, which we believe flows through to better outcomes for our investors. So we 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 are very focused on. You know, the companies we lend to, making sure we have great relationships with them and, and we provide a high level of service to them because we believe it delivers good investment outcomes. Um, so certainly the demand for, for, for us is, is very strong. Um, the, the, the two key areas that drive demand for us is probably uh, acquisition finance, so M&A activity. Mergers and acquisition activity, or, um, or or property related transactions, so large scale development transactions. So if you see you know residential high rise developments or land subdivisions or industrial buildings being built, you know we would be wanting to be part of that um, of that financing. Um, what we've found is um, it's actually been really interesting for us. You know you go back to pre June 2020. When the market um, was at the depths of its dislocation through March, April and May 2020, uh, the companies that we had in our portfolio management teams were actually reporting that June 21, FY21, the financial year ending June 21, was going to be stronger than they anticipated or had achieved in financial year ending June 19. So if you think about it, June 19 was the last financial year pre-COVID disruption. FY20 was a COVID-disrupted year. So we were really interested to see what companies were forecasting out for 21. And uh, because companies have to report private information to us and give us projections as to their forward financials, we had that information very quickly. Uh, We were sceptical that companies would achieve that outcome. And really what we watched and monitored through particularly those early months, you know, July, August, September, October of 2020, was to see how management and companies were faring in comparison to their forward forecasts. And it was really pleasing for us that very early on in the piece, the companies that we had lent to were not only achieving, but they were exceeding their FY21 budgets. 
And so, you know, as, as that's now become quite common knowledge, as the market is sort of in public markets, people have become aware of that. Uh, we, we certainly saw that very early on in the piece in terms of the, the financial performance. Now, some companies have obviously benefited from COVID. You know, their industries, particularly, say, a healthcare provider, uh, they have, have been beneficiaries. There have been other areas, food, food manufacturers have performed very well. Uh, so it's important for us from a credit perspective is to really drill down into those numbers and understand what has been the real impact uh, to the company as a result of the, the last 12 months. Is it just purely because of government stimulus that's driven improved returns? Has it been an excess demand from, you know, from, from customers that's driven their performance? Or is it something you know, in terms of the company's response on, on the cost side? So, you know, looking through those numbers, you know, right now, performance has been very strong. What we're interested in is obviously making sure that, you know, our, our, our investors are, you know, and their capital is protected by ensuring that, you know, any transactions we enter into today really uh, are viewed on the basis of, you know, have we got a, a, a known sustainable position that the company can trade through. Fantastic. So much that we've covered this this morning, Andrew. I can't thank you enough. Uh, thanks for joining us. Hopefully that you, you'll agree to come on another time. Thanks, Liz. A pleasure. Thank you for joining us this week on Fixated, the fixed income podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and don't forget to join us again next week. Still hungry for more fixed income news, views and education? Then visit fixedincomenews.com.au and don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter to have the latest news delivered right to your inbox. Thanks again for joining us. I'm Elizabeth Moran and we'll see you next week on Fixated, the Fixed Income Podcast.